I'm Eric Von Crumley. And I'm Romy Reyes. Have you ever wondered how a book becomes a movie? Or how a movie becomes a musical? Or how anything is adapted at all? Join us as we talk about your favorite stories and all the changes that were made along the way. But more importantly, why? This is Willing to Adapt. Hi, welcome back to our podcast, Willing to Adapt. I am Eric Von Crumley. And I'm Romy Reyes. How are you doing? I'm doing good. Yeah. About, yeah. It's been a, been a long time. It has, yes. I mean, our listeners have no idea, but <laughs> we kind of sometimes our recording sessions are far and in between. Yes, unfortunately. But it's all right. Yes, we're, we're back. Yeah. Anything new with you? No. Um, that you care to share? Not yet. No. Nothing. Yeah, nothing but there's something. Oh, yeah. There's always stuff. Oh. You know life. Got it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, I mean, we, we always chat with each other, so I feel like every time we say, what's new with you, it's like, should I just repeat myself? <laughs> well, yeah, well, we're setting up. That's when we usually catch up. Yeah, I'm, I'm my last year of school, um, so I'm excited about that. Just started my penultimate semester. Sounds like fun. Mm, it's all right. I remember college. Yeah. I'm in a directing <laughs> class, and the directing class is a lot of fun. It's directing for stage. Oh, okay, that sounds cool. Yeah. I go in there, and sometimes I think to myself, is this actually a class, or am I just messing around right now? I mean, it's still work, but it's fun. Yeah, yeah. I unfortunately did not take any of those classes when I was in college, so... It's not too late. Just go back. Just audit a class. That's true. I could. <clears throat> actually, it kind of sounds like fun, but I just don't have time right now. <laughs> well, uh, would you like to say what we're talking about today? Yes. So, today we're talking about Harry Potter. Okay, no. <laughs> I thought you were going to be earnest. <clears throat> today I, we're talking I about... I am earnest. Today we're talking... <laughs> That's actually my middle name. Is it really? <laughs> it is. I don't. I didn't know that. Yes. You know mine because I say it every episode. <laughs> yes. I'm gonna call you Ernie. Actually, so or before we begin talking about uh, Pygmalion and My Fair Lady. Yes, Ernie. <clears throat> when I was um, from so so from first grade until my senior year of high school, uh, I was enrolled as Ernie mm. because they couldn't say my first name properly. And so my mom figured... Romy's not even hard. Yeah, you're right. But people people are people. And so often I would get Romy, Roman. I'd get mm. even things that I had not even It was close. a different world back then. It's still a different world. I still don't get it. In fact, a, a game my daughter and I play is when we is go it, to... Isn't that an old 90s show? A different world? It was, yeah. <laughs> a, a, a game we play is whenever we have to put our name down, like uh, for Starbucks or something like that. Mm. We always um, we both do. We yeah. both get all these weird names that they put down for our our names, or like at a restaurant they'll say you know table for two for Roman. But and I try to enunciate when I get uh, put my name down, but they still get it wrong. Mm. It's okay. So, but yeah, so but I didn't start going back to Romy again until I think I graduated from high school, and then I went back to my first name. Mm. But there's still there's a whole slew of people out there who still know me as Ernie. Okay, Ernie. So, <laughs> yes, I got a lot of Ernie and Bert stuff. My sure, cousin, Bert. my cousin, uh, who just passed, unfortunately. Yeah, sorry uh, about that. Oh, thank you. It, 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 his he was Albert. So oh, no, it was Albert and Ernie. Your, you, your parents did it on purpose. And then his brother is also Ernest. <sighs> yeah. So, well, not really. It's like in my mom's side, there's so many Elizabeths. Oh wow! If it's not the first name, it's a middle name. Oh okay. No, for for our family, it, Albert's father was albert so he's named after his dad and then ernie comes from my grandpa so it just happened to line up that way got it 
Well, I don't think my family was big Star. This Star Wars. Sorry, Sesame Street fans. I was gonna say they better be Star Wars fans. <laughs> anyway, back to Pygmalion. T- well, we haven't even said what we're talking about yet. <laughs> it's okay. The book that shall not be named. Today, on this podcast, we are talking about Pygmalion, the play, but we are also talking about the, to be specific, the film musical version my fair lady yes and so we're talking about how that movie came to be adapted originally from george bernard shaw's pygmalion correct and this is kind of a special episode because we're talking technically about four different things (laughs) if you think about it we're talking about pygmalion Mm -hmm. but we're going to be talking about the pygmalion film adaptation from 1938 which i did watch you did. I did. I yes. saw clips. Okay, I found it on. Yeah, I I read YouTube. a bunch about it, and I I watched some things on YouTube, but okay. I didn't watch the whole thing. I want to, but I haven't it seen good. it yet. I like Leslie Howard. Yeah, it was a good movie. I liked it. I always think of Gone with the Wind. Mm. But then <clears throat> we're also talking about the stage musical My Fair Lady, and then finally the film version of My Fair Lady. Mm-hmm. So yeah, kind of a bonus episode, a little bit. I did not, just a full disclosure, I did not watch this, uh, a version of the stage adaptation of it. It's okay, I did. Good. But we both watched the music, the, the film version of My Fair Lady. Yes. And Which kind of holds a special place for me for other reasons. Sure. We'll get to that. Mm-hmm. So real quick, uh, let's talk about Pygmalion mm-hmm. and George Bernard Shaw. So George Bernard Shaw is, was a playwright, amongst other things. He has received many awards if you have gone through the public school system at some point you probably heard of him in english class i i remember i was exposed to him in high school english which i was going to ask you when were you first exposed to pygmalion so around the same time i discovered the musical we also learned about it in our drama class we did a night of one acts so high school it was high school yeah i remember it was either senior or junior year and so uh, one of the two of the students in the class did a scene out of Pygmalion. And that's when I realized, oh, OK, yeah. So you heard about My Fair Lady at the same time. Yes. That's interesting. Yeah. Because I grew up with My Fair Lady. OK. It was one of those movies that we had on VHS uh, and see. my family loved it mm-hmm. on both sides. I was I was brought up on a lot of things, a very wide range of things. And one of them was classic hollywood movies and that's definitely up there yeah i mean it's still widely known and parodied in so many things it was parodied in family guy and Mm -hmm. simpsons and a billion other things but getting back to pygmalion so pygmalion is a play it was written by the irish playwright george bernard shaw and it's named after the greek mythological figure pygmalion which i actually read did you i'm sure i'm not i'm not surprised I know you like uh, Greek mythology. And Ovid's uh, Metamorphoses. Mm. I actually purchased a copy just to read it. Of course it, you did. Even though it was like three pages I'm, I'm, long. Good for you. <laughs> I'm going to read that whole book eventually. Yeah. So in do you... Okay, then you read it. So you can explain really quick the mythology. So in the, in the, the original mythological story, it basically is this uh, sculptor who wanted nothing to do with the women around him because he and found them... And his name them, is... Pygmalion. Is that his name? Yes. That, that is his name. Yes. Oh, yeah, Galatea. Galatea is the... Is Galatea. The, Galatea. Yeah, thank you. See, this is the difference between reading and listening to something. Yes. I, it's, it, I read it like a month ago, so... 
It's a, literally called Pygmalion. Yes, it is. Well, yeah, it is. So he basically wants nothing to do with the women around him in the world he lives in because they're just vapid and shallow. And and so in the original story, he he's looking for the perfect... He wants the perfect woman. So he he's a sculptor. He chisels, uh, I think it's a piece of marble or something, and he get, creates the perfect woman. Mm-hmm. And he basically falls in love with the statue. And I can't remember which god it was. I think it was Aphrodite. Was it Aphrodite? One of them saw, he prayed, I think he prayed to her. Uh, and, and she granted his prayer. And I believe he prayed at the temple. And when he got back... It's usually where they did it. Yeah. He, <laughs> when he got back, she was alive. It was She had come to life. Or she came to life, I think, when he got back. And the story pretty much ends with him marrying her. Right, yeah. Mm-hmm. So I know in the research that I did that George Bernard Shaw, his audience at the time, because the, the play Pygmalion, it premiered at the Hofburg Theater in Vienna on the 16th of October in 1913. Which I thought was interesting that it wasn't in England. Well, you know what's funny is I, I kind of pieced it together. Mm-hmm. And it sounded like originally he wanted to open in England. But the people he was working with to open it there, like there was a lot of drama or conflicts. Oh, I see. And so he just took it to Vienna. Okay. But you also have to consider during this time, Europe was very connected. Yeah. It oh, was yeah. very diff- different. Um, there was, you know, high nationalism and everything at the time. Mm-hmm. But it was much easier to get around. Like they didn't have passports. True. True. You could just go. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, the high society of Europe at the time, it was not odd to be able to just bounce around the different courts and and societies yeah that was just what you did anyways so it premiered like i said in vienna and the english language premiere took place at his majesty's theater in the west end on april in april 1914 and and then actually it was interesting because i think it said march is when it came to new york and so i was like this happened very fast yeah. So it 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 always did well. Apparently, it has been adapted into different movies and obviously into My Fair Lady, which is why we're talking about it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so when George Bernard Shaw wrote Pygmalion originally, his audience was not new to the story of Pygmalion mm-hmm. and Galatea. Mm-hmm. It had been around for a little while. It was very popular during the Victorian period. Yeah. Which is not surprising if you think about the Victorian sentiment. Mm-hmm. So it worked very well for the audience because the audience could pick up on it and they knew the story. But George Bernard Shaw was interested in telling the story of Galatea, mm. which until then had not really been told. Mm-hmm. And he wanted to show her perspective. And, and so what he did is he adapted it to um, contemporary time for him. Yeah. So 1913, 1914. And he took it a different route obviously a little bit he made the equivalent of pygmalion very brutish and terrible <laughs> i mean he's funny at times but he's terrible uh, professor higgins mm-hmm. but in the end when the version of galatea played by the character eliza doolittle she comes into her own as her own person mm-hmm. and 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 it's a bit more metaphorical in his version, I would say. It's not a statue coming to life. True, true. But real quick, we'll give a synopsis for Pygmalion. Mm-hmm. Do you want me to do it or do you want to do it? You can go ahead. Okay. You really didn't want to do it. <laughs> <laughs> I usually do them. <laughs> I have my frappuccino here, so I'm going to 
Mm-hmm. You're welcome. <laughs> yes, thank you. <laughs> you still owe me for the pizza. So Pygmalion, the play, is about Eliza Doolittle, who is a Cockney flower girl in London. And she runs into Professor Higgins out on the street. And he is a professor of phonetics. And he can he can place people any, like anywhere they're from, and he can teach people how to speak better English, which is actually interesting because for the time period, he talks about how there's a lot of upstarts, which is actually accurate. So, like there are a lot of people who are moving up in society, and people crossing classes and things like that. People becoming middle class who weren't things like that. And Professor Higgins befriends this man named Colonel Pickering from India, who's also studying phonetics. And what they do is Eliza comes to them because she wants to become a proper lady. She wants to be able to open up a flower shop and speak better English and just improve her life. So she comes to get lessons. And Colonel Pickering and Professor Higgins basically make a bet where they say that Colonel Pickering will cover all the expenses if Professor Higgins can turn her into a proper lady and teach her how to speak proper English. And he has to prove it by going to an ambassador's garden party. And so throughout the play, um, you don't really get a lot in the play about how they do it or things like that. You get a brief bit where Eliza, the colonel, and Professor Higgins go to Professor Higgins' mother's house for her a day where all her friends are visiting her. And it doesn't go very well for Eliza at all. But a young man at the party named Freddy falls in love with her. And he, he doesn't really appear much in the play. He, I don't even remember if he comes back. <laughs> but uh, he starts falling in love with her. And it's, it's told later on that he, um, he's been sending love letters to Eliza. And you don't actually see in the play the ambassador's garden party after her initial failure. But you hear it went well. Like you hear that it was a triumph and everybody thought she was a... Uh, like this amazing princess or something. And Eliza instantly starts to struggle because she doesn't know what is going to happen to her. And Professor Higgins and Colonel Pickering are just congratulating themselves. And she's kind of left in the lurch. And so she really struggles to know where she fits in because she's kind of out of place now. She is no longer a flower girl. She doesn't belong in the streets, but she's not really a proper lady and she doesn't have the means to live that life, but she's stuck in the middle. And she hates Professor Higgins because of the way that he treats her, but she also kind of respects him because he got her to this position. And so eventually she, she leaves and she tries to make it out on her own and she goes to Professor Higgins' mother's house and I'm making the synopsis very long now. <laughs> but I'm trying to cover all the bases. <laughs> and ultimately what happens in the story is Professor Higgins comes after her to try to get her to stay. And she basically tells them, no. Mm -hmm. Like, you are a terrible person. And I am my own person. And I am going to make my own living. Mm -hmm. And I don't need you. Um, I'm going to marry Freddie. And... He doesn't believe it in, in the play. He he thinks that she'll come back to him. And to the very end, throughout the whole play, he's just completely brutish to her and mean. And he kind of cusses at her a couple times, actually. So she kind of gives him like a metaphorical slap in the face and says, I'm going to do it on my own. I don't need you. 
And he realizes he has actually turned her into a brand new person, that she is her own person and doesn't need anyone. But he's very misogynistic to her, and she stands up for herself, and she leaves. She won't mm-hmm. have it. And that's how the play ends. The play ends with her going off. Yeah, no, I'm glad you gave the synopsis, because that's one of the things I think, if you're listening to this, I'm going to I'm gonna bet most of our listeners have not actually seen Pygmalion. No. Yes, because that's it's very rare to come across, and, and we're not we're not talking about the movie either, because the movie we'll, which we'll get to later is also very different than the original play, and yeah, Pygmalion did not does not end at all. Spoiler warning, uh, a spoiler alert, but it does not end the same way as the My Fair Lady musical adaptation does. Mm-hmm. George Bernard Shaw was a very progressive man of his time. He he's also very controversial. Yes, very. Yeah, I he read had some very of his... weird opinions, and they were sometimes very contradictory. <laughs> they were. He was a very big feminist. Yeah, so he was all for the feminist movement, apparently. Um, but he he also had just some very bizarre ideas. Like he was definitely an anti-vaccine guy. Mm-hmm. He, I I think he was for interracial marriage, but then. Like, he just had some weird He was. He was a very... Ideas. He's an he, interesting person to study. He was. And I think, like, a lot of interesting people, he wasn't clear-cut in his beliefs, and he kind of was all over the place. He almost might have just been struggling to figure out what he actually believed. Yeah. But who knows? I haven't studied the man. <laughs> but I, I did read that in his in a lot of his plays, he did address the whole moving from one class to another, mm-hmm. which is in here. And then I, he also was very, he loved, was it phonetics? Oh, yes. Yeah. I even read some sort of thing where he, he wrote this mini poem about the absurdity of English. I wish I, I meant did. to bring it and I forgot it. I think it's in my copy. Let me Is see. It? The whole thing with how absurd uh, English. A professor of phonetics. Pronunciation is. Yes, it's in here. I'm not going to read it. It's too long. <laughs> it's way too long. Okay. But it is in here. Yeah. So yeah, no, he had a, a lot of a lot of ideas, and I even read how when he was asked about Pygmalion, what it was really about, phonetics. He would just tell people it was about phonetics, nothing else. Yeah. Yet when you're reading it or watching it, you can tell there's so much more in there. Of course. Yeah. Yes. Well, and the play Pygmalion is actually very simple. Mm-hmm. It's it's very clever. It's very memorable. The characters are amazing mm-hmm. oh, it's yeah. very simple and my biggest complaint with the the play is it felt very disjointed mm. it, it jumps around a lot and it tells you information that you need to know when you need to know it yeah yeah but it's very it's very good it's, it's very simple mm-hmm. i mean but it's a, it's a character study at the same time no it is but shaw was very hands-on he wrote the script but he also directed the original productions mm-hmm. and Apparently, his rehearsals were very tempestuous, <laughs> and they it was not uncommon that he or some of the actors would storm off, which, you know, sometimes just sounds like theater, but, <laughs> but, but worse. <laughs> but he was very particular about Pygmalion. He adamantly opposed... I found this on, on the trivia. Mm-hmm. He adamantly opposed... Any notion that Professor Henry Higgins and Eliza Doolittle had fallen in love and would marry at the end of the play. 
he felt it would betray the character of Eliza, who, as in the myth of Pygmalion and Galatea, Mm -hmm. would come to life. Yeah. And she would emancipate herself from the male domination of Higgins and her father, Mm -hmm. who we forgot to mention is Eliza's father is in this. But he's crazy cockney guy. (laughs) We'll we'll talk about him. Yeah. (laughs) The trivia went on to say, Shaw even went so far as to include a lengthy essay to be published with copies of the script explaining precisely why Higgins and Eliza would never marry. <laughs> and apparently this happened uh, a couple years after the show had been running and some of the shows had tried to change the ending to an, a version where they got married. Oh, I see. Because audiences wanted a quote-unquote happy ending. And so... Well, he... the, the movie wasn't too far after the first productions, wasn't it? Pygmalion? Yeah. The, the first movie? Yeah, it was 39. What 38, was... I think. 38, 39, yeah. yeah. So Shaw wrote this essay explaining why Higgins and Eliza would never marry. Yeah. And what actually happened after the curtain fell, mm-hmm. so to say. He, Shaw said, Eliza married Freddie Einsford Hill and opened a flower shop with funds from Colonel Pickering. Also, as Shaw biographers have noted, Higgins is meant to be an analog of the playwright himself. So if, if that gives you any idea of what Shaw was like. Yeah. Did you read about how he, when he wrote the play, it also had to do, he was also dealing with a rejection of marriage? No, I didn't. I I dropped the ball a little bit. I didn't research George Bernard Shaw very much for this one. So apparently uh, the actress who played Eliza, it was written with a a certain uh, woman in mind. Let me Mm -hmm. see if I can find her name. Yes. Something Campbell. I can't remember her first name. And she ended up playing it, I think. Yes. Uh, her name is, I would actually write, Mrs. Patrick Campbell. And according to, this is actually from the Signet Classic, it said in the introduction that Shaw had become infatuated with Mrs. Campbell. And even though she, I think she was like 10 years older than him, she, when he proposed to her, she ardently rejected his proposal. And that in turn, his stormy correspondence with her and other things that uh, letters that people have been able to read since then it kind of adds more to the character of eliza and uh higgins so if higgins is supposed to be him that even that leads gives more credence to that that idea that he really had himself in mind so he would have honestly sounds like an interesting guy i think the interesting thing that i liked from Pygmalion that carries into the other adaptations is Eliza mentions in the final scene of Pygmalion mm-hmm. how she knew how to become a lady not because of Higgins or anyone else but because of Pickering mm. because Pickering always treated her as a lady mm-hmm. even when she was a flower girl yeah whereas Higgins says he treats all people the same in that he treats everybody terribly <laughs> <laughs> I think there Higgins is a great character and I would love to play him in My Fair Lady. Yeah. He's a little bit more likable in My Fair Lady. But he's a great character to play because he is horrible, but he has some of the best lines. Yeah, I agree. And and they're just so witty. But he's a terrible person. <laughs> but in 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 the play, Eliza mentions how she was always treated terribly by her own father and by people in society and by Higgins. Mm -hmm. But 
every time she interacted with Pickering, he always treated her with gentility, like a lady, and as a person. Yes, as, a, as with respect. Yes, and and with manners and all that. There's a scene earlier on where um, Higgins and his uh, housekeeper. Um, what's her name again? This is. Mrs. Pierce. Pierce. Mrs. Pierce. Mm-hmm. Who I love in the movie. Yeah. <laughs> so Mrs. Pierce and Mr. Professor Higgins both treat Eliza very commanding. Mm-hmm. Like, like, you do this. Like, sit down and, like, shut up and do as you're told, you know? Yeah. Whereas Pickering is very much like, would you please have a seat? And would you kindly tell us why you're here? Mm-hmm. And, and things like that. Like, he treats her very well. And... She tells Higgins that he taught her, basically he taught her the mechanics. Mm-hmm. Pickering gave her a soul, essentially. That's not what she says, but I, I, I said that. Yeah. No, and, I can see that, though. And so, like, Higgins has taught her how to speak, but Pickering has taught her how to be a lady. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that's a beautiful thing because that's there's some equality in that. Like, if you can treat... I think there's this thing I read about called the Pygmalion effect. Yes, I saw. Some yeah. couple, I watched a couple of YouTube videos yes. on it. And it was saying, essentially, and you can correct me, that if you believe something, you know, for lack yeah. of a better word, if you believe something enough, it can make it happen. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the way you Where, treat people is will affect how they turn out, right. essentially. Mm-hmm. Yeah, if you, you, if you treat someone it. terribly, like, they might turn out terribly. Mm-hmm. But if you treat someone really well. Correct. Yeah. Yeah, it's like really interesting study <laughs> yeah and we're boiling it down so much i know we we're can't kind of go into it. it but yeah but, that's a whole other that's a different podcast not ours yes and we're going to touch more on pygmalion as we talk about the adaptations but i think we can start to move on but was there anything else specifically you want to talk about the play before we move on not really i think i i liked what you said earlier about it was disjointed mm-hmm. i kind of got the same sense i felt like it this is why i think it's used a lot of for one acts or for like people like to take scenes from it and reenact it. Well, because the scenes themselves are great. They are, but yeah. together, and it's fun because the copy that I have it includes scenes that Shaw wrote later on. Oh yes, this one does too, mm-hmm. and it, it mentions and it, that it, it fuels it. It it, it mm-hmm. fills it out. Yeah, but the reason he wrote those is because it was meant for the movie version. Yes, he. Yeah, they put a note in there. Yes. Something about it being for cinema. Yeah, he's very funny in that the note for technicians, I think it says. Yes. It says, unless you're filming this or you have an amazing stage mechanics. Yes. Like, you will not be able to do this. (laughs) I guess theater was more limited back then. I mean, even now it can be. Unless you have a gigantic stage, like the Met in New York. That's true. The things they can do at the Met are just fantastic. I've seen some community theaters do some interesting things. I just, well... (laughs) We don't have time to talk about the Met, but if I can go anywhere right now, except for the Royal Opera House. Oh, yeah. <sighs> Anyways, um, so did overall, did you like Pygmalion? I did. Yeah? I did. Um, Me too. I mean, I enjoyed yeah. it. It was good. I would read it again. Mm-hmm. Um, did you read it, or did you listen to it? I read it. Okay, so you didn't watch a version of Pygmalion? No, unfortunately, no. I know. I watched clips, but I didn't watch a whole version of yeah. a stage production. But I read it. I've read it before, <laughs> but... This is what's fun. I listened to the Audible version of it, mm-hmm. and Stephen Fry plays Higgins. Really? Yeah. And it was good. Wow. How'd you get Audible? Man. And I got more excited because on 
on Audible, it didn't say who else was in it, mm-hmm. but it had a few other names in it that I recognized, only from the voices. Oh, wow. His mother in the version was uh-huh. played by Celia Emery. Oh, wow. Yeah. Interesting. I was listening to her, and I was like, I know that voice. Yeah. And she was phenomenal. She was so funny. That's cool. Because in the play, his mom's like the only one who could put him in his place. Mm, yeah. No, that's right. And she is so clever and funny. But it's she funny is. because she's very much like him, mm-hmm. but she's a much kinder person. Yes. <laughs> it's his feminist uh, writing coming out. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. I think one thing to point out uh, in regards to Shaw not wanting Higgins and Eliza to marry by the end, mm-hmm. he talks about um, the characters of Eliza Higgins and Freddie Einsford Hill. Mm-hmm. And he says that Eliza marries Freddie and everything that they do he he mentions how higgins would just boss eliza around and make her like fetch his slippers and and basically you pick up in the play that she's essentially become like his housekeeper Mm -hmm. like she knows how to run the house she knows how to to where his things are and and she'll order things that they need and and all that like she has become essential to his household Mm mm-hmm which I thought was very interesting because, I mean, it's, they just they throw it away mm-hmm. in it. But you realize that she's become so ingrained in his house. Yeah. And that it's like her life. Mm-hmm. But Shaw essentially said, why would she submit herself to that once being emancipated when, <laughs> it sounds so funny, when there's a man like Freddie who will be the reverse who will do anything for her. Mm. Like, why would she submit herself to Higgins, who just going to boss her around and be a jerk when Freddie is just going to be subservient to her? Yeah. Like, why would she not pick him? Mm-hmm. I was like, you're right. <laughs> yeah. There's a lot there. I don't know if you, if we'll want to get to that. We'll talk about the characters, I guess, later. Sure. Yeah. Because there's a I mean, lot Freddy's there. Freddie's barely in the play, I feel like. He's in the very he beginning. Like, he goes to get a cab. It's, it's and... just that for, I've never liked Freddie. Really? In all the versions I've ever seen. Even My Fair Lady? I don't like him. He gets on my nerves. I like him in the movie version. He he does get a little annoying. Yeah. He but he's does. much better in the movie than in Pygmalion. And as I've gotten older and as I've matured in my thoughts regarding... I'm not saying I want to be him. <laughs> yeah. But in regards to my, my understanding and my uh, thoughts towards gender roles especially in today's society okay it's he irritates me even more sure i I get it yeah i mean he's definitely meant to be kind of a pushover yeah like from the very beginning when like his sister is bossing him around and his and his mom and his sister are telling him to go get a cab and like basically walk all over london to get a cab Mm -hmm. and all these things i mean it definitely gives you insight to his character yeah so without saying pygmalion was very popular Mm -hmm. it did very well it got around and apparently for years people wanted to make it into a movie ultimately george bernard shaw decided to go with let me go to my notes the film version which was directed by anthony gosh i'm gonna say this wrong anthony asquith i've committed to it and that is how i'm saying his name (laughs) i'm sure it is wrong but apparently hollywood was trying to give him tons of money to get mm-hmm. the film rights and he was not having it because he did not trust hollywood and he had there have been productions that had essentially screwed him over oh okay and 
But I guess he really liked the producer, Gabriel Pascal. Mm-hmm. And and he basically like gave him the film rights for nothing. Oh, wow. He's like, here you go. Wow. But I think like the more you read about George Bernard Shaw, the more you're just like, okay. It, it, it's something he would have done. Yes. Only he would have done. So Pygmalion is a 1938 British film based on the play of mm-hmm. the same name. And it was adapted by George Bernard Shaw for mm-hmm. the screen. It stars Leslie Howard as Professor Henry Higgins. Except the ending was not adapted by him. Uh, yes. And w- <laughs> Wendy Hiller. Yes, Hiller. I almost said Hitler. <laughs> as Eliza Doolittle. What I thought was interesting about this one is that George Bernard Shaw actually worked on it. He did. And and so all the scenes that we have, the additional scenes, were, were made for this. For this film version. Mm-hmm. But there were some changes made, obviously. Yes. And one of the... One of the changes is they had like a montage of how Henry Higgins is teaching Eliza Doolittle, mm-hmm. which I thought was good. Yeah, I hate that you never see it. Yeah, you just you, in the original play you just go from "I'm going to make you into a lady" into "I am now ready to show you off." Mm-hmm. And it's like, okay, missed a step. Yeah, <laughs> and then the same thing happens with where she Eliza does not do well at um, the party, Mrs. Higgins, Mrs. Higgins yeah. party. Like, she kind of makes a fool of herself, but then it's like, okay, well, we're going to go to this ambassador garden party and then skip. And it's like, well, that went very well. It's like, we missed something again. Yeah. That was my biggest complaint with the original play. Okay. But for the movie, he filled in those gaps. Mm-hmm. And I like that. Mm-hmm. And and those are included in, in the scripts that we read. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But like I said, because there's a little essay at the end, an interview with him that talks about someone asked him about the ending. And he said he did not have, they. he had 20, he was up against 20 directors who had their own ideas and they were trying to sidetrack him. And Mr. Gabriel Pascal, who does really know chalk from cheese, which I didn't understand what that meant. And so that they added, there was other people who added, uh, had their own say in regards to the writing of the ending. And in the end, he was just like, whatever, that's not how it's supposed to end. And I think this was the beginning of the changes that eventually led to the musical. That was the one thing that caught me was the watching the evolution. Because it's as I'm watching, so I read the play, mm-hmm. watched the first original 1939, 38 movie, and then, of course, watched the musical at the end. And mm-hmm. it was, to me, fascinating to see the evolution. Oh, for sure. Yeah. yeah. It's it's a steady um, ad- adaptation. Yes. Like, it's not one of those adaptations where bounces around. Mm-hmm. Like, this was a slow grow. Yeah. And it worked. It did. It did. Yeah. I think the other thing I really liked about the film adaptation, which I thought was interesting, is I think they set it into the modern day into the 30s. Yes. In fact, I picked up on some of the like the electronics and other things yeah. that were definitely 30s. Yeah. Because the story still works. Mm-hmm. Like, it works fine. I, I like that it was still modern for their yeah. time. But the other thing is they changed it from an ambassador's garden party to an embassy ball. Which That's I think raises right. the stakes more. Yeah. Because you can get away... I feel like you can get away with some stuff at a garden party, but not at an ambassador's ball. Yeah. Yeah. Like, that's tougher. Mm-hmm. And they show it. That's I like that they showed it. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that they they included was... And they changed the name. But in the movie, it's, um, I think, Professor Zoltan Karpathy? Karpathy? Whatever. Karpathy. Or Karp- <laughs> yeah, Karpathy. And they changed the name... 
from I think Nepomuk in the original play. Yeah. But in the original play, you only hear about him in the last scene, mm-hmm. and it's it's like a throwaway line. Yeah. But in this one, they they changed the name. I don't remember why there was a reason it had to do with racial connections and things like that. But I think one of the workers was Hungarian or something. Oh, okay. <laughs> I think he wanted to show Hungarians or something. But they changed the name, but they they expanded the character a bit to show him in the the ballroom scene as like you know like a very minor antagonist like mm-hmm. he could give it all away mm-hmm. and so they raised the stakes mm-hmm. significantly yeah and i i liked that cuz it it shows what would happen if they fail mhm and, and i thought it worked no it did well it did and, and of course for anyone familiar with my fair lady the 1938 film version is where we get the rain in spain yeah and all of those things where he's trying to teach eliza like essentially the montage scene they use in the 1938 movie is what they use for 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 pygmalion is what they use for my fair lady it was the stepping stepping stone yeah (laughs) i mean i'll say it right now and everybody says it the stage production of my fair lady was based significantly and only on the 1938 film Pygmalion. Mm. Like they saw the film and the movie did so well. They said, we're going to make an adaptation of that. Okay. Like they never really meant to adapt the original play so much as they meant to adapt that film. That makes sense. Yeah. Like I guess the creators of My Fair Lady, the 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 stage production, um, Alan J. Lerner and Frederick Lowe like specifically said that. <laughs> That's what yeah. we're doing. Well, I noticed the ending was almost exactly the same. Oh, yeah. Yeah. A little different, but yeah. I mean, yeah, it was a little different, but still. Yeah. I, I was, I think what surprised me the most, and, and see, I didn't I didn't read that, what you just said right now. Mm-hmm. But now that you say it, it makes sense. Because when I was watching the movie, the original movie, with, uh, with right after, or right before My Fair Lady, and just seeing the similarities between it actually took me aback. Mm. Because I expected the movie, since there was no singing in it, to be more like the original play, and uh, uh, that makes more sense now that you've you've right brought up that point. When you watch it, you know, out of chronological order. Mm-hmm. So when the nineteen thirty eight movie Pygmalion was being made, <laughs> Shaw wrote a compromise ending. He knew people wanted a quote unquote happy ending. Yeah, for years people have been trying to change the ending, and <laughs> apparently. In some of the stage productions, people were changing the ending, and he was livid. Like mm. he would go in and was a nightmare to them. Yeah. But he wrote this compromise ending for the film. He still had Eliza leave to marry Freddie, and I think the I read somewhere the idea was that Higgins would leave at the end after Eliza left. And I can't remember if it was he actually saw or just imagined seeing Eliza with Freddie, like, running a flower shop. Hmm. And just without any words, he sees them, and then he kind of has this moment where he has some resolution, Mm -hmm. and he sees she is better off, and I've had an impact on her, but she's had an impact on me, sort of thing. And so he kind of grows a little bit, like, silently. Mm Mm-hmm. And I, I, from what I remember, I guess a police person stops by and asks him, is there anything wrong? Yeah. And he says, no, nothing wrong. A happy ending, a happy beginning. Oh, uh, okay. 
And that's how that was the compromise ending that Shaw wrote for the film version in 1938. And it was not used. No, I don't remember. I was going to say <laughs> it was not used specifically without is um, okay. Yeah. Which I'd be very mad if someone changed my ending. <laughs> <laughs> but what they did use in the ending. And 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 to be in the the film version of my Pygmalion, it fleshes out a lot. Yes, it it really it adapts well for a film. Mm-hmm. It gets rid of the scene transitions, and um, instead of just walking off stage, it shows Higgins watching Eliza take off in the car with Freddie. Mm-hmm. But, but <laughs> the biggest difference from the original play to the 1938 film, as you were saying, is he goes back and apparently. This is the weird loophole that I, I heard somewhere. So I'm going to tell you straight first. Some of what I'm picking up on, I got from a YouTube video by Jay Draper, mm-hmm. who is amazing. I love all her videos. She's, I think she's a historian, but if she's not, she should be. <laughs> but she has very well researched videos and she talks about Pygmalion and My Fair Lady and the ending of My Fair Lady and... She, she ends up saying what she would do to fix the ending. Mm-hmm. And I went into this video very guarded because I like My Fair Lady. So she fixed My Fair Lady? She says what she would do. Interesting. And I, at first I'm like, I don't really want to see this because I yeah. was afraid of what she would say. Yeah. And I was very happy with what she ended up saying. And I'll tell you later. Mm-hmm. She's actually a very intelligent woman. I, I love what she says. I love watching her videos. Look her up. So, so some of what I, I I'm talking put a link about somewhere. Yes. So some of what I'm talking about it comes from her as well. Apparently there there was this weird stipulation that they couldn't add any dialogue that wasn't already written or something like that. And so the way they got around that in the ending is they had Henry Higgins in the 1938 film version. They had Henry Higgins go home turn on the audio recording of Eliza that he had made and listen oh, to her talking. Okay. And that's how you hear her in her cockney voice on the recording yeah. through the whole thing. And then you hear him talking on the recording. And and then what happens in the film version is he turns around because he sees Eliza has come back mm-hmm. and she's at the door. And he sees her and he kind of like smugly like turns around and you just see the back of his head, which yeah. I agree is a terrible ending. You're just staring at the back of his hat. <laughs> but you hear him say, where the devil are my slippers? Yeah. And it's very smug. Mm-hmm. It's like, yeah, I win mm-hmm. sort of thing, right? Yeah. And that's how it ends. Mm-hmm. And the insinuation is she has come back to be with him. Yes. Right. It's left for interpretation. It's meant to be a little ambiguous, but that's the assumption. Correct. And the way they got around that, apparently, I, I could be wrong. I could have misremembered some of this. But apparently is they did that because they did not add any dialogue. Oh. They just used dialogue that had already been written. Interesting. Yeah. And hmm. I was like, all right, then, sneaky. Mm-hmm. Obviously, George Bernard Shaw was not happy. Yeah. <laughs> and And so even though the movie was vastly popular, he was not happy. <laughs> Which, understandably so. Of course. I mean, someone rewrote my ending. Exactly. Yeah. And so that was why, for a very long time, it had not been turned into a, a stage musical. Because mm. he's like, no, we're not doing this. Yeah. So any more thoughts about the Big Million movie from 38? It was, an, it was more enjoyable than I thought it would be. I do recommend if you... 
I think it's on on Max. I think that's where I watched it. Mm-hmm. But if you do have an opportunity to watch it and you are listening to us, and I'm assuming if you're listening to us, you're someone who enjoys good films, watch it. That's my uh, recommendation. And the actors. I Like you said earlier, I know you mentioned you really like the, the main actor. I can't think of his name off the top of my head right now. Um, Leslie Howard. Leslie Howard, yeah. I... I hadn't seen him in anything in a while like other than the other big film why can't i think of the name of it that he was in gone with the wind yes that one <laughs> uh so it was it was it was interesting to see his portrayal of henry higgins i felt it was a little bit different than what i'd had already seen before but still true to the higgins that we all know and yeah i guess love i guess george bernard shaw did not want him as the in the role Really? Because he was too handsome. Ah. And he didn't want Higgins to be handsome. Mm. There you go. <laughs> he didn't want people. I, I, yeah. It's almost like he didn't want people. He doesn't want people to love him. So therefore, he didn't want anybody to love Higgins. Aww. There you go. He, he, I, it seemed in some of the things I read about him that he kind of had a. He, he even though he, he was, was pushing people away. He, yeah. Yeah, it was the, uh, I can't think of the term right now, but where you, self-sabotage kind of <laughs> things in there. But I mean, part of it comes with being, like, another thing that I was thinking about he earlier. He was Irish. <laughs> well, I don't know about that. I, I'm I, Irish. So. I have no Irish blood in me. It's one of the few I don't have. Aww. And But it was like, when you see what a genius in certain ways he was, uh-huh. it, it makes sense as to why a lot of like this kind of the the certain psychological aspects that i saw in him uh the the stuff that he wrestled with and the things that caused him to be who he was you can kind of see a not i want to call it a self-loathing but it was there was definitely something there and and it, it to me after kind of reading a brief synopsis a brief a little description of 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 him and his life and then understanding what he desperately wanted Higgins to be. It definitely was him putting himself in that character. And that it was, to me, I think one of the most fascinating things is how he just really did not want people to like Higgins. And yet, thanks to the movie and now the musical, he's probably one of the most beloved characters in, you know, musical theater. There you go. Yes. I personally liked Higgins growing up. I, I I love I love him in the film version. Yes, and and man, I don't know how this is gonna sound. Um, I was never this bad. Mm. I'll just say that okay. I was never misogynistic. Mm. My mom would jokingly say growing up that I was like Professor Higgins. Oh, really? <laughs> just like the way he would phrase things and and oh. like the witticisms and like some of the put downs. Okay, you know. Like never the misogyny. But see, I, but I think that's what I I found different people growing up, especially in high school, that were drawn to the character. It was never the misogynistic aspects that they were drawn to, which are a lot was, less in the musical. Yes, version. yes, but it was more the intellectual aspects and having to put up with people who are not as intellectual as you. <laughs> and I saw a lot of that in in different areas. Sure. <laughs> Would you like to talk about the the stage musical, My Fair Lady? 
Or do you want to keep talking about the film Pygmalion? No, we can. We so okay. I don't. I, I didn't really watch. That was the one I said I didn't get to watch. That was the, the stage one. Production, the stage production. Of My Fair Lady. Yeah, that's fine. Did you, you, do, you said you watched well, it. Right? I, I I can you know monopolize our time a little bit more. <laughs> so My Fair Lady. Yes. The stage production, the musical. It uh, <laughs> it opened on Broadway in 1956. Okay. And. It had music by Frederick Lowe, and the lyrics were by Alan J. Lerner. Yes. It was a critical and popular success. It won six Tony Awards, including Best Musical. And it set a record for the longest run of any musical on Broadway up to that time. And in the original production, it it um, starred Rex Harrison and the famous Julie Andrews. Mm-hmm. Which, you know, when you grow up with Julie Andrews in movies like... Sound of Music or Princess Diaries or what have you. And then you watch her as a Cockney girl. You're like, what is this? <laughs> <laughs> but <laughs> she does a great job. Mm. She's funny. Wait, um, did you actually see? I've seen clips. Oh, okay. Yeah. She did a film, like a TV, um, like, oh, like highlights okay. of My Fair Lady. I was wondering how you, how you were able to get a copy of the... I've seen them back in the day. Yes, yeah, I'm that old. <laughs> You're older than me. Yeah, but here's here's what's interesting, and bear with me because I'm I'm reading this off of Wikipedia, which is completely accurate. So, a- after the film version of Pygmalion in 1938, George Bernard Shaw was so unhappy with the experience, like they changed his ending and everything. He refused permission for Pygmalion to be adapted into a musical. It was not until Shaw died in 1950. That, get this, Gabriel Pascal, who was the producer, and mm-hmm. he was the one who had the rights, he's the one that went to lyricist Alan J. Lerner to write the musical adaptation. Interesting. Yeah. And so he and his partner, Frederick Lowe, they began to work. But they realized that the play, in their words, violated several key rules for constructing a musical. The main story was not a love story. There was no subplot or secondary love story, and there was no place for an ensemble. Huh. Never thought about that. So many people, including Oscar Hammerstein II with Richard Rodgers, had also tried to, but had given up on making it into a musical. Mm. People thought that Pygmalion was in no way adaptable into a musical. I didn't realize they had broken rules. I didn't realize there was rules at the time. Yeah. So so he the two of them had abandoned the project for years. That would have been interesting to see a Rogers and Hammerstein, mm-hmm. my fair lady. Yeah, it wasn't until like they got back together years later yeah. that like all the pieces fell together. Like they finally like figured it out. Like they added the action in between the scenes and obviously it was heavily inspired, if not completely taken, from the nineteen thirty eight film. I'm sorry, I'm just thinking of Yul Brenner as Henry Higgins right now. Yeah. Well, but what's interesting is because, you know, I'm a, I used to be a theater major, now I'm a theater minor. And mm. I grew up doing theater. And so I know, so I know a lot of the history of theater. And it's, it's funny because nowadays, you know, most, we, we think about musicals and modern day musicals are very different. Modern day musicals are kind of whatever we want them to be, you know? Yeah. Modern day musicals, it's, it's not unheard of to have, a dark show like you get Sweeney Todd and Jekyll and Hyde and all these things and it's 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 not abnormal to have shows with only a few people yeah a musical with a few people 
because you you can do it you know that's what i was saying i didn't know there was rules but <laughs> here's the thing mm-hmm. you have to think about it in context for the time yeah of course musicals of the time were very different mm-hmm. what people wanted from musicals at the time were very different musicals stemmed out of operettas oh, of their day mm-hmm and so they were all very uplifting, very fun. You did not have dark musicals. I thought they came more from like the vaudeville. I mean, some elements come from vaudeville. Oh, okay, but uh, most of most of the uh, musicals mm-hmm. come from operettas. Okay, like it's not the grand opera. Yeah, but anyways, so if you a lot of it's funny because if you look at Sorry, if you hate musicals, why are you listening to this podcast? But <laughs> <laughs> but otherwise, bear with me. So, very, very, hopefully brief, very un- brief understanding of musicals and the de- development of them. So, musicals stemmed, like I said, from that. And in the 20s and 30s, a lot of musicals were just fun. Like, there was conflict, but they were just fun. And the songs and the musicals almost had nothing to do with the plot like sometimes they had love songs because mm. the characters were in love is this why because there's that one guy where they recently came out with a new musical and he's been dead for forever but i've noticed that they take songs that were written gershwin i think it was a new gershwin musical George Gershwin. and so they take songs that i saw in different movies and musicals and other things and they're able to take those songs and create a brand new musical out of it. Yes. Because that's essentially what you're, what you're saying. Okay. So, for example, Cole Porter, Anything mm-hmm. Goes. Yeah. The musical. Set on a ship. It is about a couple who's in love, but she's supposed to marry this other guy. Okay. And he steals aboard the ship to get her back. But there's also the comedic duo who are, like, wanted by the law, who are pretending to be a priest, you know? <laughs> <laughs> and then there's this other girl who is like a like a lounge singer who's super popular and like had a a coming to Christ moment, but like she still kind of has connections to the the underbelly of the society, you know. Interesting. I've never um, seen it. I'm just about to give you the highlights, but but almost all the songs except for like a couple love songs have nothing to do with the plot. Interesting. Like very little to do with the plot, and so they're very soundtrack like because. Mm. What happened for the most part during the 20s and 30s with musicals back then is these were just big hit numbers. Like these people were writing just songs and then they were kind of just piecing it together Okay. for the most part. I'm getting it kind of wrong, but that's the gist. And it wasn't until you get, I think the one that really tipped it is the musical Oklahoma. Oklahoma, correct me if I'm wrong, audience. I know you will. Oklahoma... (laughs) I believe was the first musical whose all of their musical numbers had to do with the plot hmm. or the characters like internal like conflicts or anything like that. Interesting. And know. so all the numbers had to do with something that was happening. Okay. And they weren't just random. Yeah. And, and so that was when musical started to change, but that was in the forties. Hmm. And so it really wasn't until the fifties that you started seeing musicals like West Side Story. Yeah. Where it was it's dark and it's like the underbelly of society, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and it does not end happy. <laughs> yeah. But you know that was brand new. You know, musicals were upbeat, they were fun. Mm. And they were they were these 
they they always ended on a high note. Yeah, and like like the the, mar- the couple always get together in the end. Mm-hmm. That's how musicals for this time were. Interesting. Because hmm. the idea was, if you wanted anything else, you could go to anything else. Like, like you, if you wanted tragedy, you go to see an opera. Oh uh, yeah. <laughs> like yeah, essentially, you know. That's that's what it was, you know. Mm-hmm. Musicals for the time, that, so that was the niche. Were musicals catered at this point towards the upper class? I can't tell you specifically. I think musicals were a lot more accessible. Okay, you you could go to them if you didn't have as much money. Um, like it's it's always hard to go to an opera if you yeah. don't have money, or if you don't understand the language it's in. Sure, <laughs> I mean you <laughs> always you always it. can get the libretto in your language. That's true. <laughs> But and, and now it's on it's subtitles. Yeah. It's, you don't have to read out of a book, but you have to buy the book back then, which sucked. But <laughs> anyways, I mean it's paper. Yeah. But musicals were always more accessible. You, you, so, so in that case, I feel like it's almost it was maybe catering to yeah. the. But you also have to think about in general because they can know, afford it. The twenties and thirties, like it was escapism. Yeah. Right. Yeah. You know, you think about movie musicals mm-hmm. during that time. It was just for fun. Mm-hmm. Like, it was a tough time. People just wanted fun. Yeah. And it wasn't until the 40s when you started seeing some stability in society mm-hmm. that they could change musicals. Mm. And it didn't have to be just fun. Mm-hmm. And so when you think about it in that context, that explains why people thought Pygmalion was not adaptable into a musical. Because like they said, it did not have any ensemble. Yeah. And everything else I said. Mm-hmm. But the other thing I remember finding very interesting is musicals are very emotional. Mm-hmm. They always have been and arguably they always will be. Yeah. Pygmalion is very intellectual. I agree. I think that's why I liked it. <laughs> and it's not, it's not really emotional. Like yeah. it has emotional moments, but it's not emotionally driven. It's very intellectually driven. And so that was another aspect with like, how the heck do you turn this into a musical? Mm-hmm. It's all about intellectualism. And like, how are you going to get a guy like Henry Higgins to sing? <laughs> right? True. And so that's what I thought was interesting. That's why, and I never, I knew he did this, but I thought it was a weird acting choice. Mm-hmm. It was on purpose. That's why Rex Harrison like half sings, half talks his songs. That's why I laughed. Like, it's, it's actually yeah. a character I should play because I don't have yeah. to sing. <laughs> Yeah, but that was a choice. Like, That's why I've always wanted to be. Yeah. A, they Henry, told Henry him Higgins specifically, "We're gonna write production. these songs, but you're gonna like half talk them." I wonder if that's why a lot of because we we had to watch it in high school because we we read the play and did all that, and I I often wondered why the guys in the class were drawn to that particular one. I wonder mm. if it was because it was more intellectual. Even, Maybe even even the musical is still a little yeah. more intellectual than the. And he's funny. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> So we we have a subtitle for today's uh, podcast. What the history of theater? That's musical theater. There's a lot to there's a lot to cover. <laughs> no, it's a good thing. To... I have to admit, there's a lot there you explained that I was not aware of. This is what our conversations have been like in the past. I've learned a lot about the, uh, opera. You see, what else was the other thing? Ballet. Uh-huh. There's so much to ballet more than I ever imagined. One day we'll do an adaptation there. I know. I know you want to. <laughs> Which yes. Yeah. <laughs> So the musical, do you have more? Or do you have more on the on the history or of the musical stage production? Yes, we'll add to this one. Yeah, I do. <laughs> so the 
play had first been staged on Broadway, I said, in March of 1956. Mm-hmm. And it opened in London in two years later. There was a clause in the... Well, this is for the movie, really. But okay. there was a clause in the contract that stated the movie version could not be made until the play had finished running. Hmm. That's why the film was not made until 1964. Oh, wow. Because <laughs> um, the the stage production shut down in 62. Wow. Yeah. Which is a good run. It is. Yeah. That's why I said it's, it was the longest running for the time. Mm-hmm. I can't remember what beat it. I know Phantom beat it at one point. Phantom just stopped. It, well, it's still running in, in London. Is it? Yeah. I know the... The American Broadway production. Broadway yeah, production I know it's stops. sad. I can never go see it now. I know. I'm kicking myself for not seeing it in London when I was there. <laughs> Whatever. So the musical script, it, it uses, like I said, several scenes that Shaw had written specifically for the 1938 film version of Pygmalion. Okay. Including the embassy ball sequence and the final scene, which was not written by Shaw. Um, but there's also the montage showing Eliza's lessons and they were expanded for the musical. Mm-hmm. And it combines both learners and Shaw's dialogue. We could talk a little bit more about the musical, but I thought this was interesting. And it's hard to tell which of this is accurate and which is not. I've found many different versions, and I think this is accurate. It could be apocryphal. But according to Nancy Olson, who was married to lyricist Alan J. Lerner at the time that he was writing the musical, mm-hmm. um, they were having trouble writing the final song for Professor Henry Higgins. Um, I... I've grown accustomed to her face, right? That's the song title? Yeah. The two writers based the whole concept of the musical around the notion that Henry was far too intellectual a character to emotionally sing outright. Because mm. there's this idea in theater that you will always talk until your emotions become too much for you and then you start singing. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, it gets broken, obviously. Say that one more time. In theater... You you talk to share your ideas until it becomes too emotional, and then you start to sing. Okay, okay, I see what you're saying. Like essentially, that is the you can break it, but that is the the rule of thumb. And so that's why a lot of times you'll hear like in a musical, like someone talking, and they're like, like you come back here. I don't know what you're thinking about. I was going to. You know? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> like, like it just it just like it just goes leads. into the singing. Mm-hmm. I just made up a whole song right there. That was a whole sequence for you. We're going to do a musical episode one day. Jeez. Like, I don't think I have the patience. <laughs> Anyways, so the two writers, they had based the whole concept of the musical around this notion that Henry was far too intellectual a character to just emotionally sing outright. But he should speak his songs on pitch, more as an expression of ideas. Mm. However, both the composer and the lyricist knew Henry would need a love song towards the end of the story when Eliza Doolittle had abandoned him. And this presented an obvious problem. How do you write an emotional song for an emotionless character? (laughs) (laughs) Lerner suffered apparently bouts of insomnia trying to write the lyrics. And one night, uh, Nancy Olsen claimed that she brought him a cup of tea to soothe his nerves. As she entered the study, Lerner thanked her and he said, I've grown accustomed to your face. According to Olsen, his eyes suddenly lit up and she sat down, he sat down, um, and she watched him write the entire song in one sitting, based on the idea that although Henry couldn't quote-unquote love Eliza in the traditional sense, he would surely notice the value she represented as part of his life. And I've always agreed with that. Mm-hmm. I, we'll talk about this more when we talk about the film version, okay. which is the final thing to talk about. 
but you know everything we cover in the stage production for the most part is going to be the film version yeah but i've i've never growing up even as a kid i never thought that the two of them ended up together romantically mm. and i watched this movie since i was probably like three <laughs> right <laughs> i i never thought they ended up together romantically like okay. even though she comes back in the end, yeah, I always thought it was more of like a weird respect thing. Mm. I always thought it was like a friendship. I thought it was because like I'm not as a kid, I wasn't like I grew up with Disney. Like I knew what romance for you know for a kid was. Yeah, yeah. So I never thought that they were romantically a thing. Like I never thought that that was even an option as a kid, which okay. I think is interesting. I don't know if that's just the way I was raised, but but. Um, even when she comes back at the end and the whole like um where the devil are my slippers and everything i i always thought it was more yeah and this has again this is the movie and the, the stage production yeah but they definitely soften his character a bit for the stage production they okay. which they didn't they didn't they do for the movie yeah, as well they do for the movie as well yeah and but basically the movie is the stage production yeah just recorded mm-hmm. <laughs> with better costumes and sets and <laughs> <laughs> but they definitely mellow him out a little bit and they they like he still is very misogynistic at times mm-hmm. obviously <clears throat> and they make him a little bit more funny but they and but like all the dialogue is the same yeah it's all the same mm-hmm. except for just a few added bits but they soften him a little bit and they they make him they humanize him a little bit mm-hmm. whereas in the original Pygmalion he's unrelenting mm-hmm. the whole time he is like unredeemable yeah in this one, you see some character growth in the stage production of, of My Fair Lady. Mm-hmm. And you get to see Higgins come to terms with who he is. Mm. Like, he has lost Eliza, and his mom has shut him down, essentially, for his actions. And even Pickering has left at this point to go find Eliza. Yeah. And <clears throat> and Eliza, like, has basically said, you know, I'm gone. Like, I don't need you. Mm-hmm. And... And so now he's left in the lurch and his whole song, I've grown accustomed to her face and the way he even treats her. I, even as a kid, which yeah. I think is crazy. I'm sure obviously not as a young kid, but older kid because <laughs> <laughs> there's nuances. Mm-hmm. I always viewed him as a person who puts on a front. I've always viewed Higgins as a character in My Fair Lady. Yeah. My Fair Lady specifically as a character who had something inside of him that he refused to show people Mm -hmm. and that anytime he was uncomfortable or he felt like he wasn't in control that he had to like say something that was off-putting yeah to to, like maintain that like you said they they humanized him more in this version because i mean and it's still true to his character it is yeah Yeah. because i i immediately right now more likable yes because i immediately right now just men in general and I guess women too, but I can only speak for men. The idea of of putting on fronts because of things you're afraid to deal with or whatnot. Right. You know. I mean, just recently I was discussing with someone who put on a front about uh, not wanting to be in a relationship. Mm-hmm. And really, it was just to protect themselves because they don't want to get hurt. And then they realized, oh my gosh, I'm actually lying to myself. Oh yeah. And I think that's that's yeah that's with the 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 musical version uh i 
I agree with you completely that that's, yeah, well, that's it, kind it, of how I saw them too. It, it deals more with the emotions of the characters, which the original play did not care to talk yes. about. Well, it was more intellectual. Well, yes, we yeah. said that, yeah. Mm-hmm. But I've always looked at, when you look at how they, they frame him in My Fair Lady mm-hmm. with Higgins, like he'll have these moments where he's a little vulnerable or like he sees a character doing something mm-hmm. and he might think, well, maybe I'm not doing this the right way. Or, this, you know, you're picking up on these things, right? Like yeah. he doesn't say it, obviously. But then as he starts to think that way or view it that way, he'll flip mm-hmm. and he'll say something mean. <laughs> and and you you especially when you, you you hear I've grown accustomed to her face, he'll say something nice about her, but then he'll say, I'm very glad she's a woman and so easy to forget, you know, all these yeah. things. But you, you hear it in a in a way that makes it sound like he doesn't actually believe it. Mm-hmm. And he's just saying it to comfort himself. Yeah. And like you get to see how he's changed from the beginning to the end, because mm-hmm. in the beginning he literally has a whole song about how he does not want a woman in his life. <laughs> he's like, "You let a woman in your life, and your life becomes hell." Basically, that is the song. <laughs> yes, it is. <laughs> and it's a funny song, unless like well, I love that song. Unless you're just like a major feminist, and you're like, "Go to hell," you know. But <laughs> but but you, that's his character development in the My Fair mm-hmm. Lady. Is he goes from "I am never gonna let a woman in my life," which is literally a quote he says, mm-hmm. to "I have grown accustomed to her face," and he realizes the value that she had in his life and like the changes that, and this is of course subtext, right? Of course. All the changes that have happened in him because mm-hmm. of her and not just vice versa. Yeah. And I loved that in my fair lady. Mm. I think for purists for George Bernard Shaw, they don't like that. Of course. And the, I think there's definitely feminists out there who are like, he is irredeemable. Mm hmm. You know, I think as a Christian, I'm like, everyone's redeemable or can be redeemable, you know? Mm. I was just kidding. Go ahead. <laughs> but, but, you know, I, I've always, I've always liked that yeah. about him. And so like the whole song, like they said, it's not a love song. It's, mm-hmm. it's like a value song. It's yeah. like, I can't believe what I have missed out on because of my own selfish idiocy, you know? Mm-hmm. No, I think, yeah, I agree with you. It, it, it shows the evolution from the beginning to the end. The only, the only song I'll say that, that I think still stands as a truism and has not changed and does tell the truth is uh, Why Can't the English. Oh, I love that song. I know. I do, too. I used to sing it. Uh, I, I loved, yeah, when I first heard it. Yes, my favorite line is, in America, they haven't used English. Well, they haven't <laughs> used it for years. Or in years? <laughs> there are even places where English has completely disappeared. He says, "Well, in America, they haven't used it for years." Exactly. <laughs> Which yes. is, they wrote that specifically for the American audience mm-hmm. as American writers. <laughs> it is <Jeez>. true. Though. <laughs> oh, that in the line about the French. Yes. Yes. Uh, what, do you, you want to say it? Uh, the French never care what they do as long as uh, actually as long as they pronounce it properly. Yes. Yes. I've seen so many YouTube vid- or videos of. Have you ever seen that one where the daughter's purposely saying croissant no. instead of the French way? She says it in the English Quo-quo. way, and he's like, he gets so angry at her and goes off on her for saying it improperly. <laughs> and I can't help but think of this musical every time I or the time I saw that video. Next time on Willing to Adapt. All right, should we move on to the film version yes. of my family? Which is pretty much the same thing. 
it was the first time I got to see a character in which you didn't have to have a great voice to sing. <laughs> you, we don't necessarily want her to end up with Higgins, right? I would disagree with that. You want you want her to end up with Higgins, like romantically? I think it, it's a better ending than the original one. Okay. I don't think it's a good ending in general. I don't. Sure. Yeah. I agree to disagree with you. Mm-hmm. Thank you for listening to our podcast, Willing to Adapt. Please like and subscribe. Maybe leave a review or just share us with friends and family. We would also love if you would follow us on social media. If you have ideas for future episodes for us, please email us at ericandromi at willingtoadapt.com. That's Romy with an I. And remember, when the only thing constant in life is change, be willing to adapt.